Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 111. I love a number like that. I do too. I was like, do I say 111? And then I was like, no, let's one, just say them all. One, one. <laughs> nice. Hello, How you doing? Sally. I'm good. Uh, there's construction happening outside of my window. Uh-huh. Nothing I can do about it. Started right as we started recording. Of course. Um, <laughs> and always, isn't it always the way? After I went and got myself one of these little like pod bubble things to record in so that uh-huh. I, my sound was better. My sound has been terrible lately, guys. I know I'm aware of it and I'm sorry. Um, but I got one of these little like insulated little cubby holes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in it. It's like your own trapper but, keeper for yeah, podcasting. I'm inside my own. Remember at school when like when you were in elementary school and they would make you like put the books up so uh-huh. that you were partitioned off from the other students? Yeah, so no cheating. I that lo- was living my best life when I was in a partition. Uh you and me both. Oh man, <laughs> loved it. I, I love a cozy corner. I love a space. <laughs> I didn't understand why we couldn't do that all the time. <laughs> Don't no look at look at me. Don't talk to me. <laughs> Don't look at my shit. <laughs> Leave me in my cubby. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I went through all this uh, trouble to have better sound, and then uh, right as we were starting to record, uh, there's beeping. They just start blowing there's whistles. There's screeching. There's whistles. <laughs> there's a parade going past your yeah. door. Who knows God. what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> There's a high school band, <laughs> marching band. Um, There's a guy on stilts. Yeah. <laughs> what's happening outside? Jugglers, fire breathers. <laughs> it's a mermaid. <laughs> a dog parade. Um. <laughs> uh, so, Jen, I think we need to talk about the curse of the pod. Curse Striking of the pod. Again. You guys, I was way too brazen last week when I talked about celebrating my niece's uh, 16th birthday with her. And I even went so far as to say what I got her for her birthday because I will surely have given her a present before then. Uh-huh. And we were on our way to Sophia's birthday party when my daughter um, vomited. <laughs> And then sirens went off, and we were like, "Come on!" So we like, and he ran around in circles like crazy uh, people. Yes, we like stopped the car, <laughs> ran around the car five times. Come on! <laughs> and then so then we spent like the whole day trying to find covid tests which were like nowhere to be found and thank god my friend danielle is such an angel and she was able to find some the last four packages there's two per yeah uh, but she found the last four packages of at-home covid tests across the street from her to CVS and got them for us and we all good tested job, negative everybody's negative uh she never had a, we went home. We didn't go to the party, obviously, for safety reasons. <laughs> First, we spread it to everybody else. 
she never had a fever. And then I kept her home from school just to be safe. She tested negative two times. She uh, yeah. never had a fever, never felt – was running around my house all day long like a little maniac. Her brother too because I kept him home to be safe too. And then they ended up going to school on Tuesday when I knew they weren't sick. But So no COVID, but I – she did have a little bit of a sniffle, and I think that I caught her sniffle. She oh, um, can't go out with a sniffle, Jen. I know. I got a <laughs> sniffle, and now I'm like, shit, I got to get in this cubby hole until I know what's going on. So after this, I'm going to go get one of those COVID tests and just be super sure. I feel yeah. fine. I'm just – it's like a little cold. It's 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 nuts trying to get a COVID test these days. Like I know. for a while you could just go, just show up, get right in line, no problems. And now with school back and everybody's like trying, you know, there's Why? so many like classes quarantining. It is like it is hard to find an appointment. It's hard to find those COVID tests. I know. They should just be giving them away. They should be dropping them on from the tops of buildings like flyers in an eighties <laughs> movie. Right? <laughs> It should just be. It should just be raining COVID tests. Just COVID tests and maybe like some chocolate with it. I don't know. I'll take chocolate melts, but I'm willing to assume that risk. I'm, I'm willing to take it. In our 95 degree weather, I'll take it. Georgia. Um, oh man! I think we should do some quickies. Let's do it. All right. I am first this week. And I have something that is going to make us feel good about the world. Good. I got my information from NPR. No, no author. Okay, so you might have read this story. This is actually a sports story. But there was a 25-year-old Polish javelin thrower named Maria Magdalena Andrasik who won the silver medal during the Olympic women's javelin throw in early August. And then last week, she announced on Facebook that she was going to sell silver medal and put the proceeds towards an operation for an eight-month-old boy named Milosic Malasa, who is a heart defect and needs an urgent operation in the Aww. United States. And so this was like this operation and the transporting and everything was is going to cost like over $100,000. So she actually just randomly came across a fundraiser for this baby on Facebook and decided to sell her medal to help this stranger. And Maria said the medal for her was a symbol of struggle, faith, and the pursuit of dreams despite many adversities. And she added, I hope that for you it will be a symbol of the life we fought for together. Her medal was actually like, I mean, it was incredibly hard fought. She had wow. she had actually missed winning a medal in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics by only two centimeters. So she's like a javelin thrower. So she missed by two centimeters. And then after Rio, she dealt with shoulder injury and Achilles injury. And then she learned that she had been having headaches and like nasal problems and it turned out it was bone cancer oh no yeah and so she ended up having surgery and she made a total recovery she started training again just three weeks after surgery um for the tokyo olympics and she ended up winning the silver medal there and so then this week maria announced the winner of the auction and it was the polish convenience store zabka and they paid $125,000 for the silver medal 
which is enough to send the baby to to get the surgery. But instead of taking the medal, Zabka announced that it was going to let Maria keep her silver medal after all. They said, We were moved by the beautiful and extremely noble gesture of of our Olympian. We also decided that the silver medal from Tokyo will remain with Miss Maria, who showed how great she is. Oh, I know. Isn't that nice? That is sweet. That's just, a very good one. Just nice people doing nice things all around. And I can't remember what I was going to say. It had to do with love, but, you know, just love a fellow man, you I know, think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I always say, like, w- people consider us to be a true crime podcast. And we do talk about true crime, but I think I consider us to be more of, like, a, a human interest podcast. Yeah. Just human interest. Yeah. And sometimes that interest is murder. Yeah. You know, (laughs) people are interested in murder. And sometimes it's the Olympics. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. Get off our backs. Well, um, my quickie is in a totally different direction. Nice. It usually is. So mine is a good old fashioned listicle from BuzzFeed.com. <laughs> Thank you, BuzzFeed. And the uh, person that put this listicle together's name is Hannah Debros Debrogos. Okay, Hannah. Let me tell you how her last name is spelled in, <laughs> mm-hmm. then so you guys don't think I'm a total idiot. It's D-O-B-R-O-G-O-S-Z. How is that? How do you do a S-C? Z? Oh, uh, Debrogos. it's just S. It's probably, probably Hungarian. Dobrogos. So, Hannah, thank you for your work. <laughs> in Hungarian, the S-Z is just pronounced S. Got it. Mm-hmm. Good too. No, but this listicle <laughs> is uh, 19 weddings that got derailed in the worst possible ways. Love a good shitty okay. wedding. Love a good <laughs> shitty wedding. Yes. <laughs> um, so they had reached out to, I believe, Reddit users. Oh, man. Um, Reddit yeah. is a font for writers. <laughs> Reddit. Yeah. They went on Reddit and asked, like, what is the worst thing you've ever seen? happen at a wedding. And here are just some of my favorite responses. I'm not going to do all 17, just like the ones that stood out to me the most. Okay. Um, So there's one that said, there were four separate fistfights and the bride was involved in two of them. She threw the first (laughs) punch in the second fight. That's wild. That's just a quick one that I thought was interesting. (laughs) Number four on their list was there was an eight-year-old boy who had loads of confetti in his hand. Turns out he thought it was sugar paper, ate all of it, and then proceeded to projectile vomit everywhere through the middle of the ceremony. It was Uh. one of the funniest and most disgusting (laughs) moments of my life. What the fuck is sugar paper? And why does this kid think he can eat it? He's like, you know how we have sugar paper sugar all the time. Paper. You know, this is my sugar phone and my sugar backpack that I like to right? gnaw on whenever I'm bored. <laughs> That's some fat kid shit. Um, and look, I'm sure he was a beautiful and healthy eight-year-old boy. I'm just saying. <laughs> when you start calling inanimate objects sugar, sugar. whatever that object is, some fat kid shit. 
<laughs> Here's one. I was at a wedding where one of the bridesmaids had gotten married a month earlier and thought it was a good idea to change out of her dress and into her wedding dress no. for the reception. What a fucking monster. That uh, seems fake, right? Nobody the, would she do said, that. I don't know. She's got a lot of details here. The okay. rest of us in the wedding party told her to change back. She decided to stand at the head of the buffet line and tell – each and every one of us, how she really felt about us. Booze was involved, so you can imagine how it went. She refused to change out of her wedding dress until one of the bridesmaids locked her in the bathroom and told her she had to change or it was going to get physical. She changed and left not long after. The rest of the reception was a fantastic time. Can you imagine having to tell? So you think this fake? I don't know. I mean, I, I it could sh- be. It could be fake, but it also, I mean, it just. I'm to sure me there's no like- fact checkers. Uh, oh, right, on Reddit. Kinds of it things. just to me yeah. seems like who would do that? It's so it's so crazy. But people do crazy things, you know? Yeah. Weddings weddings really get to people for some reason. Pe- they really. I mean, there's just there's more. Okay. Yeah. Here's one. This one really made me laugh okay. for some reason. Um, during his speech, the divorced father of the groom started going on and on about how much better his new wife was compared <laughs> to his old wife. <laughs> Who I'm sure was there. Of course. Thanks, Frank. (laughs) You have to do this here? I know. Um, uh, Number seven was the sister of the bride who wasn't invited, showed up drunk, and got into a fist fight with the bride until the father of the bride broke it up by putting the sister in a chokehold and dragging her out of the venue. (laughs) The bride was surprisingly fine afterward. I know. (laughs) I I can see why she wasn't invited to the wedding. Yeah. This one is cringy. Um, my mother-in-law ha- handed out my sis- new sister-in-law's EP to as many guests as she could and threw a fit in the middle of the dance floor later that night because I didn't let her daughter sing with the band. Her exact words were, how dare you make this day all about you? It was my <laughs> wedding day. Oh, my God. Oh, that's um, amazing. Um, this one says, I worked weddings for a living and once saw the best man get loaded, give a speech, profess his love for the bride, and say how they had slept together two nights prior. Cool, 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 cool. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> this one made me sad. This one's really sad. The groom was drinking heavily, and by the time the cake was supposed to be cut, he was passed out in the back of the room. The bride was crying hysterically, so her dad stepped in and cut the cake with her. Oh, that is real sad. That was real sad. Man. This one says, I went to my cousin. This one, this one made me really laugh. (laughs) I went to my cousin's wedding where the groom and groomsmen wore tuxedo t-shirts. Yes. And when it was time for the groom to say I do, he said, oh, shit, I guess. Shortly after eating, he and his friends proceeded to light the trash on fire and shoot clay pigeons behind the house. Oh, my God. This sounds a little <laughs> bit like that, that, like, bush beer wedding that we right. did. But that was a classy wedding. But this just yeah. kind of reminds me of that. All right. Here's the last one that I have. Uh, It says, I saw the bride and groom get in a huge argument where the bride produced their actual marriage license and set it on fire in front of the entire reception. (laughs) Good times. That's totally some shit I would do. That's like some mad Italian shit. 
if I was pissed off enough. <laughs> like, would, what can I do that would, I would be the do most that. dramatic? <laughs> dramatic. The most cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> what can I burn? I like how this bride rolls. <laughs> Those are my quickies. Oh, man, I can never get enough, you know? I'm all holistical. Yeah, Jen, if we ever do like a, do a, a spinoff podcast, I think we should just – do listicles. Do listicles. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Hey, listen, if you guys want us to shift over to being more listicle based, send us a message. <laughs> we will gladly blush. I mean, we could be sponsored by BuzzFeed. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> You're on to something. Yeah. You are right. on to something. Guys, stay tuned. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a wild story? I am. I'm always ready for a wild story. I got my information from the Washington Post, a really amazing article by Monica Hesse, uh, the New York Post by Stephanie Cohen, a series of articles on WTKR.com by Becca Mitchell and Todd Crowillo, and from the Chicago Tribune by Julie Klein. On November 12, 2012, Deborah Clark made a 911 call to report a fire in an abandoned house that was in the field across from her home. She lived in Accomack County, which is a very small, a very rural part of the eastern shore in Virginia, which is like a peninsula between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. So it was originally like a farming community and had once been more populated, but by 2012, there were only about 33,000 permanent residents in the county. Accomack was actually once one of the country's richest rural communities. It was like there was potato production, there were railroads and tourism, because it's right on the ocean and it's on the bay. So it's very pretty, but once potato prices fell and then, you know, railways were like replaced by trucking and then there was a rise of big box stores, the region just lost a ton of jobs and residents to bigger cities. Wow. So soon after Deborah placed the 911 call, she heard sirens coming from the Eastern Shore Fire Station. And at this point, I'm going to read a little bit from the article in the Washington Post um, by Monica Hesse because I think it's really like it was very very dramatically written. Um, mm. But she also, Monica Hesse, would later go on. She wrote a book about this story. In the coming weeks, she would get used to the sirens. Everybody would. They would sound just after bedtime or just before, twice a night or once a week from Parksley, Tasley, Melfa, Bloxham. The county vibrated with fire engines groaning over gravel driveways. The county vibrated with suspicion. The county went about its business. The county burned down. People assumed the culprit must be someone who lived among them, and people would be right. It would be a love story. Deborah Clark's uh. fire was the first fire in Accomack County. In the span of five months, there would be 76 more. Just three hours after Deborah Clark called 911, at 1 a.m., Helen Hasty called 911 to report some aban- abandoned outbuildings on fire on her farm. She told yep. the operator, they're not insured, they're vacant. They're just old shacks that have been there for 100 years. Eight minutes later, another call came in. There was a brush fire in a ditch on the edge of some woods. The next night, a sheriff's deputy was on his way home and called in to report another ab- abandoned house burning. Two more calls came in that night. Because the area was rural and the population had shrunk, there were tons of properties throughout the county that were abandoned. And the Accomack County Sheriff's Office doesn't have its own fire investigators. So to investigate these fires, the Virginia State Police sent down special agents to examine these properties. 
The agents determined that all six of these fires in those first two nights had been intentionally set, and yet no one had seen or heard anything, which makes sense because the county is basically like has one main road that runs down the middle of it, which is called Route 13, and then Mm -hmm. all of the roads off of it are just these kind of quiet county roads, and Mm -hmm. apparently after 8 p.m., there's hardly any traffic on any of these side roads, so there's no one out and about to see anyone coming and going. And these are like really, you know, sparsely populated areas. So there's no, really no neighbors in close proximity to notice someone strange driving around. So in the month of November, there were 22 fires set, all in abandoned buildings. In December, there would be 15 more. The fires were almost exclusively set into abandoned buildings or structures, but occasionally they would strike closer to someone's home. On December 15th, Lois Gomez's detached garage went up in flames around 4 a.m. The family kept chickens in a coop attached to the garage. And as she watched her garage go up in flames, she realized that actually all of the chickens were running around her lawn. So whoever had set the fire had let all of the chickens out of the coop before they set the fire. And of course... Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it seems very... Like, these fires are being set intentionally at abandoned places. They're not trying to hurt people. cared enough about the chickens. Right. So very strange. Like, what are what are these people getting out of it or what is this person getting out of it? So everybody in this small community was talking about who could be setting the fires. People posted theories on Facebook. They were, like, eyeing each other up in the grocery stores. You know, they gathered in small groups when there were fires and they would talk about, like, Did you see anyone? Who could this be? And then when the fires happening almost every night, firefighters started sleeping in the fire stations, like not even bothering to go home because these were all volunteer firefighters because it was such a small county. They couldn't afford full-time firefighters. So generally the way that it would work was that a call would go out to everyone who was a volunteer and when they were at their homes and then anybody who was available would go to the fire. But because these fires started happening so often, it basically became a full-time job for these people. And law enforcement from all over the area were like starting to be they would like stake out near abandoned building, hoping to see something suspicious. They started using these computer programs to find some kind of pattern in, in the fires. Nothing they did led them to any suspects. There was actually a group of armchair detectives. They called themselves the Eastern Shore Arsonist Hunters. Oh, and wow. so they were just like a group of citizens who decided to pu- purchase motion-triggered cameras. So they would put them on homes that they thought would be likely targets, but they never caught anything. Weird. Yeah. So like the terror, the fires are like terrorizing this community. They are depleting what little resources this volunteer fire department had. So nearby fire crews in places like Ocean Park and Virginia Beach and people in the communities around um, Accomack County started collecting donations of money and supplies to help the Eastern Shore volunteer firefighters out. There was even a story that I found about this 13-year-old girl who for her birthday asked her friends and family to donate to the firefighters instead of giving her presents. Very sweet. Police initially offered a reward of $5,000 for information, and then eventually they upped it to about $25,000. 
So this kept going on. This is now in February. Police announced that they believe the fires were the work of several people working together. They said in a press release, we're confident that a few of the arsons are the work of some individuals seeking to take advantage of what has become a serial crime spree. So they were like, wow, some of them they thought were probably people looking, you know, were like, "Ooh, I'm going to set set fire to my barn and then collect the insurance money because – Everybody thinks this is like the work of arsonists, but but they said the, but the evidence collected from other fires indicates that the majority of the arsons are the work of several individuals, possibly working connection with one another. Oh wow! So at this point, they're burning all sorts of things: houses, shacks, cabins, billboards, piles of tires. There was nothing that pointed to insurance pro- insurance fraud. Most of these places weren't even insured. There was an airplane hangar that burned, a storage building, a church, um, a commercial garage. And then there was also this closed motel called Whispering Pines, which was at one point was like a fancy resort in the area, but had since been abandoned. So all Mm. of these places burned. Um, In February, three months into the arsons, there was a rare fire at an occupied house. It was owned by a man named J.D. Shreves. He was a single father who worked for a tree pruning company. And J.D. had left his house for about 25 minutes to drop his two young daughters off at his mother's for a visit. And when he came back, he thought he had smelled something burning, but he walked all around and couldn't find anything. And then when his daughters got home, they noticed the smell too. And so he was like, let me go check. I'm going to look on the outside of the house. So he like walked around the outside of his house with a flashlight. And that was when he found on the back of his house, he found a lit piece of cloth that was like smoldering and it had been stuffed. It like siding had been pulled back from his house. And then this lit piece of cloth had been stuffed into the siding. So Oh, my God. Yeah, obviously this had been intentionally lit, and it was just like by stroke of luck that it hadn't caught on and burned the whole house down. But also police were like, this means that someone was watching their house to have set the fire in the 25 minutes that J.D. was gone. So this was actually the 44th fire since November. Yeah, so in like three months, 44 fires. In March – Uh, Police started setting up checkpoints on these like rural parts of the roads to hopefully stop the arsonists, but they didn't find anything. And then on March 1st, 2013, by that point, there had been 76 fires. And that night, Virginia State Troopers Troy Johnson and Willie Burke were on a stakeout near the southern border of the county. And this was something investigators had been doing over time. They would be assigned to stake out certain houses and buildings that they thought might be targeted because they were either abandoned or looked abandoned and just hope that somebody would show up and they would catch them. So that night, the two had on night vision goggles and they were in this camouflage tent about 50 yards from the property that they had been assigned to surveil that night. And they'd been there for about three hours when they saw a gold minivan stop in the road. A passenger leapt out and ran at a dead sprint towards the back of the house. And then the officers saw sparks. Finally, the fire started, and then they saw the figure run back towards the road. The two officers chased after the guy, but then the minivan reappeared. The person got into the passenger's side, and the van drove off. 
Luckily, the police had called for backup, so the police were already set up at a traffic light up the road where the rural county road and the main road intersected. And so minutes later, police were able to pull over this gold minivan. Oh, and my in God. It, yeah. In it were a couple named Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick. And actually, when Todd Goodwin, who was the longtime sheriff of Accomack County, showed up, the intersection was already swarming with police cars. And so Todd goes over to where Charlie Smith had been put in the back of a police car. And it was such a small town that Todd and Charlie actually had known each other for 20 years. And Charlie looks up. Yeah, he looks up and he says, Todd, I'm sorry, but I didn't light them all. So Charlie Smith was one of those guys that everybody knew. He'd once been, he'd actually once been a volunteer firefighter in the south part of the county, although he hadn't been active for a couple years. But now he ran an auto body shop in Tosley, which is one of the small towns in the county. And he did body and paint work. And he was known to have had a history of drug use, but everybody liked him. He was kind of, he was described as kind of like a lovable doofus whose addiction kept causing him to screw up, you know? I think we mm. all know people like that who, like, you're not bad people, but they are drug addicts. Um, yeah. So in actually in 2011, he'd met Tanya Burdick. And his friends had set him up on a date with her at this local bar called Shucker's Roadhouse. And according to him, he went on the date and he had two eight balls of cocaine in his pocket because that's just how he rolled. But when he met Tanya, one of the first things she told him was that she didn't approve of drugs. She said – I'm a single mom. I'm raising two boys. I'm a nursing assistant. Like, I don't use illegal substances and I don't associate with people who do. So she told him that if he was going to be around her and her kids, he couldn't be on drugs. So Charlie says that when she said that, he immediately went to the bathroom at Shucker's and flushed his eight balls down the toilet. Oh, wow. Like, he was so instantly taken by Tanya that he decided that he was going to get sober for her. So Tanya had also grown up on the Eastern Shore. She was a little bit of an outsider. She had an abusive father. They were pretty poor, but she had this loving mother. She'd grown into a a pretty woman who was also known at Shuckers as someone who was kind of like always ready to party. Mm -hmm. Um, She would like dance on tables, which apparently wasn't unusual for the place. But one of the waitresses said that one time she came in, she had on a trench coat and then underneath just her bra and underwear. Uh-huh. Um, so she was like, she's kind of wild. But even though she like, she occasionally let loose at Shuckers, Tanya always thought of herself as like a homebody. I mean, she liked to read. She liked to be in with her boys. But then she also once a week liked to go out and drink. So mm-hmm. on the night of their first date, Charlie and Tanya talked for hours in the parking lot. And like most people, Tanya found Charlie to be lovable. She said, you could say anything to him and he would laugh. His smile would just light up his face. So eventually they started dating and Charlie moved in with Tanya and her boys. And Tanya actually set up a clothing store in the same building where Charlie had his garage. She named the store A Tiny Taste of Toot, which is like apparently after a pet name that her father called her. Also, A Tiny Taste of Toot? Isn't that like a... A toot is like a code for doing coke, right? It's also, I also code for I a also fart. Thought that. <laughs> right. I mean, either way, either way, a horrible name. Yeah, <laughs> I think we can. I think Not we can a agree. good nickname. 
Uh, but she says it was after the pet name her father called her, who apparently her father was also a horrible person. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, everybody said that Charlie and Tanya were super in love. They shared, they were like a, the couple that shared a Facebook account. And sometimes Charlie would go on their Facebook account and leave Tanya public messages one time she had posted a picture and he went on and was like, it's Charlie. Not only are you the best and I love you, you are the most beautiful girl in the whole damn world. She's very sweet mm-hmm. in a way that I hope to never be. So in the summer of 2012, Charlie asked Tanya to marry him and she said yes. They started planning a wedding. It was going – can you guess – I, I don't know if you okay. It's based on a um, a video, a, a music video. Can you guess what music video oh, it's based on? Billy Idol's White Wedding. That's a good I, good one, but no, uh, it's, White uh, Snake. <laughs> you're you're so close. Am I? <laughs> you're you're She's right. She's my cherry pie. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that warrant? <laughs> you're like circling around it. It is. <laughs> Uh, pour some sugar on me, Def <laughs> Leppard. It's November Rain by Guns oh, N' Roses, which is damn. That's a great video. It's a great video, but also she dies at the end. That's but, true. She does die in the um, end, but it's intense. It is intense. It was um, a powerful power ballad. <laughs> it is, and very long, a very long. <laughs> um, so apparently they they said they envisioned it. <laughs> God, I have to listen to that song. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just – I was trying to remember the name of the model who was in it. Oh, was it um, – it was his wife, right? Stephanie Seymour. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's so beautiful. So beautiful. So beautiful. But so they they envisioned it. Not so beautiful. (laughs) Not so beautiful. (laughs) They thought it was going to be the party of the year. They had invited 300 guests. They were they were going big. Apparently, there was only 500 people in the whole town. <laughs> they were like, and we're inviting Everybody's 300 of them. invited. <laughs> 300 of them except for you 200. Like, um, <laughs> What if it was like everybody except for you, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> Not you, Toby. <laughs> It's fine. I'm more of a white snake fan anyway. Yeah. Uh, so after their engagement, like what a lot of people didn't know was that the couple were going through a pretty hard time, actually, individually and as and together. So Tanya had found out her her older son had she knew he had a behavioral disorder. He had been diagnosed as a young child, but it just was getting much worse as he got came to be a teenager. Like he, he, he was hospitalized several times. He ended up being placed in like a homeschool program. And so Tanya actually was forced to quit her nursing job to care for him. That's why she set up the store because she thought it would be more flexible so she could care for the, her child. And Charlie's mom had passed away in May of 2012. And although mm. Tanya didn't know, he'd started using drugs again. He actually had a daughter from a previous relationship, and his daughter's mom cut off contact with him when she found out that he had relapsed. So so they're both having issues. And then also, as a couple, they hadn't had sex for more than a year. Um, Mm -hmm. Apparently, Charlie couldn't – like 
couldn't he couldn't get it up um oh, and he was like charm. i know he was like highly self-conscious about it and and try, tanya was was very kind about it like she tried to be patient she encouraged him to see a doctor and the doctor i guess told him you know the problem is not physical this is definitely something mental mm-hmm. and charlie said he had always kind of thought like he always thought that he wasn't good enough for tanya like he was like she's she's smart and she's pretty and and he's clean is what he said but like even though she repeatedly told him that she loved him he just couldn't believe that he would love someone like her and he told detectives the minute i fell in love my dick stopped working (laughs) so very i know so when charlie and tanya were arrested they were questioned separately by the police and they had vastly different stories about what had happened so tanya said that she and charlie had been driving around that night when he asked her to stop and let him out of the car and so she did and then a few minutes later she swung back around to pick him up and she said i didn't know he was going to light a fire she said she had didn't know anything about the arson so they kind of like gotten in a fight and he'd been like get let me out of the car and then she was like well i should go get him so actually in in late 2012, she, she said when the around the time the arsons began, she said that Charlie's behavior had started changing. She was like, he started disappearing all the time. He would she'd be home with the kids and he would tell her he had to go back to the garage to do more work. But she was like, he wasn't bringing in any more money, even though he said he was working all these extra hours. And so she had worried that he was cheating on her, although he denied it when she asked him about it. So that's what she Mm -hmm. says. She was like, I didn't know anything about the arsons, but yes, he was gone a whole lot. And then Charlie, on the other hand, immediately confessed to his involvement. But at first he tried to leave Tanya out of it. He actually wouldn't say when they were like, why did you set these fires? He was like, I'm not I'm not saying anything about that. And he would like ask to see Tanya. And then he said, is there any way we can get her out of this? So eventually Um. he told police that the entire thing was Tanya's idea. He said that on the first night in November of 2012, the two were out driving around and Tanya said to him, I want you to set that house on fire. He said he was confused, but he wanted to please her. So he said he had gotten out of the car and come back saying he had done it, but he actually hadn't set a fire. And he said that for the first time in months when he told her that he did it, she seemed happy and relaxed. And when and later she was like, let's go check on that house. He was like, I actually didn't set the fire. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh-huh. And he said at that point, she said to him, never send a man to do a woman's job. And they went back together. And this time Tanya lit the fire. And Charlie said he hated doing it, but he said, I just couldn't let her down. I mean, her son had basically just torn her to pieces. She don't hit her kids. She don't yell at them. Basically, he was saying like, Tanya was a good person. She didn't have anywhere to like vent her frustration. She was having all these problems with her son and her life and that setting these fires seemed to soothe her somehow. So like, who is he to say that's the wrong thing to do? So according to Charlie, Tanya actually was the one who lit the first 14 fires, but then she was nearly spotted by police in December, and Charlie said he couldn't bear the thought of her being caught, but he also knew how much she needed the fires, like how much this was like a compulsion that seemed to like help her. Mm-hmm. So 
he told her that he would do it from then on. So most of the time, Charlie said the fires were just totally random, except for a few, like the one at J.D. Shreve's house, because J.D. was Tanya's ex-boyfriend. And Charlie actually set that fire on Valentine's Day, um, only after making sure that nobody was home. So both Charlie and Tanya were charged with arson and conspiracy to commit arson. Charlie pled guilty right away to 67 counts of arson in November of 2013 and was sentenced to 15 years in jail in exchange for testifying against Tanya. Tanya maintained her innocence. So So weird that he would light fires because he loved her so much, but then be like, it was her fault. Tanya was in jail while she waited her trial, which started on January 15th. It actually had to be moved to another county because nobody could be found in that county who didn't know about the know about the fires. Mm-hmm. Um, so Charlie came in to testify, and he was asked by the prosecutor, was it true you were engaged to Tanya Bundick? And he said, I still love her. And then Tanya's attorneys actually argued that Charlie's testimony wasn't wasn't the truth, but it was actually because he was worried that Tanya might meet someone else while he was in prison. So he wanted her to go to prison too, so he could keep her. And what the yeah, so her attorneys were like, it would kill you if you found out she was dating someone else, right? And she, he said, yes. And he said, you wanted her to always be your princess. And he said, yeah, I do whatever I could to make her happy. I didn't want to lose her. So Tanya actually testified that the night they were stopped by the police, it was the first time she realized Charlie had anything to do with the fires. But then after she testified during the recess, her lawyers were like, look, we're looking at the jury and I think they believe Charlie. I don't think it's looking good for you. And so she actually ended up entering what's called an Alford plea, which is basically Mm -hmm. says she doesn't admit that she's guilty, but she does acknowledge that there's enough evidence to convict her. So it's like a guilty verdict, but she's not saying she's guilty. So Tanya was sentenced to 17 years in prison. Both she and Charlie are still serving their sentences. And so this is a quote from that Washington Post article, which is great. You should go read it if you want some more backstory. It says, Tanya and Charlie's relationship had become one of two love stories. Either, as Charlie says, he loved her so much that he would have been willing to burn up a county because he thought it would make her happy. Or, as Tanya grew to believe, he loved her too much to let her be free while he went to prison alone. Wow. Yeah. So that's my crazy that's story. What happens when you love too much? When you love too when much, when you love too hard, mm-hmm. you burn the whole fucking city to the ground. Yeah. So it's. I mean, wow. it. It is like because I don't know the book that the the writer, the woman who wrote this Washington Post article that she wrote. She basically comes to the conclusion that like he's telling the truth. She is lying. He, you know, it was all her. She wanted the fires, but. There's not really any explanation for why she, why she would want this. The research into arsonist is really it's it's like it's hard to pinpoint because you know some people do it for just like the reaction, like it just makes it you know it's like a power or a just some kind of compulsion, mm-hmm. and you know and then then other people do it for like insurance money. So it's a really hard thing, or they do it because they think they're going to like hurt someone in a, in a building. Like it's, it's yeah, a really like, crazy. In this case, it wouldn't be insurance money because. The, Not insurance. They weren't trying yeah. to hurt anyone. Um, yeah. Like the, the, the woman who wrote the article basically is like, 
she was at a point where she felt completely trapped and unhappy with where she was in life. And so like the, her reaction was like to burn it, <laughs> burn it to the ground. Wow. Um, but of course we don't know. We don't know who's telling the truth, but they're both in jail. So. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Wow. That is a wild one. That's a wild one. Or I should say a hot one. <laughs> get it. Oh, I get it. Hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. How do you feel about love story? Jen, you know me. You know I love love. Uh, well, it's also that time in the podcast where we do a love story. And oh, so oh. to not disappoint you. Thank I'm you. I'm going to give you a love story. Is it a good one? <laughs> or- it is a good one. <laughs> no, it's like no, it's like a nice, nice, upbeat, happy love story. Ooh. I've been throwing you some real softballs lately. Let's just I, say that. I love a softball. I just, you know, I love happy town. So I just don't have it in me for crying anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Taking a break. It's good. It's good. Okay, cool. <laughs> we all um, need so- it. This love story came from um, a New York Times article written by Vincent Malazzi, and it's a real cute one. On June 26th of this year, Denise Fennell and Rick Pasqualone, or Pasqualone, depends on who you're talking to and who you're asking. Ask well, it depends. Yeah. Let's ask Rick. You know what? Ask- <laughs> Rick's not here. Um, but uh, they stood before their family and friends and said, I do. But what's interesting about their story is that they already did say I do once before. In fact, it was their very first words to each other 15 years earlier. As perfect what? strangers in 2006 when they were married at a casino in Temecula, California. Why were they married as strangers at a casino in Temecula, California? And why were their first words to each other, I do? Well, because they were both actors playing Tony and Tina in um, a production of Tony and Tina's Wedding, which is uh, the, uh, the off-Broadway hit. Uh, have you guys – did you ever see Tony and Tina's Wedding? I never saw it, but I, I mean I know of it. Like it's one of – it's like a dinner theater, right, where it's like, yeah. it's like an interactive thing and – yeah, they get married like, and then you get to be like a guest at the reception and yeah, audience members are treated like their wedding guests at yeah. the reception. Yeah. So they were playing Tina and Tony and they would also say I do about 5000 times again but with different Tinas and different Tonys. Oh wow. <laughs> throughout the years, but when Denise met this particular Tony, Rick, um, <laughs> she <laughs> she knew that he was different. She said when I married Ricky that day, meaning when she married his character, <laughs> when I married Ricky that day, I couldn't stop staring at him. He looked so handsome. I couldn't wait to meet him later at the bar and really get to know him. It was like after they had their production, then she would I'd be like, hey, what's your name? Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's um, so funny to be like. I know. It's, yeah, that you don't know each other. You just know these parts so well that yeah. you, anybody can like just sub in. Yeah. It, apparently there was like a 20, it was a 22 year run of this show. Between yeah. 1988 and 2010, and it was like in over six countries. Like it was huge. Yeah, I so, know, I but, can't believe I've never seen it because I used to. I as a young as a young girl, Jen, I love me some dinner theater. There did was you? A, yes, there was a place in Dayton by us that was uh, like did dinner theater, and it was like my favorite thing. My sister in law Claire, love her to death. She 
used to always say that she wanted for Christmases and for her birthday, she always wanted to go to Agatha's murder mystery dinner or whatever, always (laughs) wanted to go. And they used to always tell the story about how like Claire always said that that's what she wanted. And then one year they gave, her parents gave tickets to Agatha's mystery theater or whatever to Zach, her brother, my husband, and his girlfriend at the time. (laughs) Not Claire. Yeah. And so, so one year to be um, sweet, like we ended up taking Claire and her whole family to Agatha's dinner theater and it was terrible (laughs) from the food to the acting to the like overhead lighting to the costumes. Everything was horrible and not worth the money. Yeah. There was a place in uh, Chattanooga actually, the place that – where I used to do stand-up, like the first show was – it was a dinner theater. But they – so they would do – the first show would be dinner theater, like a murder mystery theater. And then late night they would have comedy shows. And so sometimes you would go to like have the buffet early and to watch the dinner theater. It was also terrible. Oh, <laughs> it was also terrible. But it would be so painful because you would go and you would – it would be packed like to the gills for these – horrible dinner theater things and then there'd be like five people at the comedy show so you're just like god damn it oh my god and I remember ours was like a Christmas themed murder mystery Uh everybody I can't remember like everybody got some kind of a role and they gave Zach um the role of Bobby Sled and he was supposed to be like an Italian like hey Bobby Sled over here and Zach is from the south and terrible at doing New York accents and it just oh man it made me cringe the entire time like, hey, yo, way, yeah, yeah, Bobby sled. <laughs> anyways back to Tony and Tina okay or should I say Denise and Rick when the show was over and she went to go introduce herself and talk to him find out more about him sadly she found out that he was actually married and he had two children and she was like, oh, well, you know, that yeah. stink. And they went on with their lives. And then they didn't see each other for a long time. So Rick, just to give you a little background on him, he grew up um, on Long Island like me. Just like you. Did you know and him? I didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> um, and he, but he graduated from Boston College and he was going to go to medical school, but he found that he had like a real passion for acting and he just like he just decided that college wasn't for him. So he became an actor and then eventually got into playing Tony and Tony and Tina's wedding. So he's eight years older than um, Denise, which isn't a lot, but I guess in actor years, it's a long time. And so (laughs) he, so when she was getting started playing Tina is when he was kind of getting over doing this show and playing Tony. Like moving into an older role or something? I guess, yeah. So they only played um, Tony and Tina together that one time. But then in 2014, when um, they – it was the 25th anniversary of the Tony and Tina show and they were doing like a relaunch in Times Square to celebrate the anniversary, um, it just so happened that both Denise and Rick were asked to come back and play the bride and groom's parents in the anniversary production. Oh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So they hadn't seen each other in like a pretty much like a decade. And then when they saw each other, like feelings came flooding back. You know, she still thought that he was the most handsome guy she'd ever seen. And they were really uh, attracted to each other. But this time Rick was divorced and he was 
single and ready to mingle. And then they <laughs> at, at the wedding. But they were living on opposite coast. She was in New York and he lived in LA, but they just, they kept like kind of a long distance friendship going. And then that turned into them writing together. They were like writing partners. And then eventually it became a long distance romance. Okay. Um, And yeah. And then they started dating and then obviously that went well because then they ended up having a real wedding on June 26 at her family's house in York Beach, Maine. And oh, so they that got, sounds lovely. It does sound lovely. They planned their wedding together during the pandemic when, as she says, when the world stopped moving and we fell in love. You know, so they started planning it together because they had all that time. And she has since relocated to Los Angeles, but then she, but during the pandemic, she turned her parents home into, as they write in the article, as a giant stage for their nuptials. Um, and gave the property a complete overhaul. Like she had the entire lawn replaced with a new one. All right. Um, she put up a tent. Uh, they brought in trailer bathrooms. They built a flower wall. And she even put in like a dance. Uh, she had a stage and a dance floor built onto her parents' property. Her parents must love her very much. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds also, like I'm like, I guess when you don't run a venue, you have more money for stuff. Yeah. I've been right? to um, a, someone's wedding that was like on her parents' farm and they put in all the stuff. And there was, yeah, there was a dance floor and there were their fancy bathrooms outdoors. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. yeah, I guess you have more money for that if you're not paying for the venue. But but it was lovely. But among the guests, there were a lot of Tina and Tony, other Tina and Tonys over the past few years. So yeah. like other actors <laughs> that played them. There were a lot of Tina and Tonys there. But Denise and Rick to this day are the only to- Tony and Tina in the history of the show to have married for real. Denise said, I've never had anyone look at me and believe in me in the way that Ricky looked at at me and believed in me. He made me a better person and he made me a wife and mother of two beautiful children. Actors can have a very selfish lifestyle. We know. So can comedians. Um, But (laughs) actors can have a very selfish lifestyle. But watching Ricky be a father showed me how he always put his family first. In those moments when I saw how wonderfully he treated his children, I just knew that he had changed my life in a way that is indescribable. Indescribable. Yes. She said that being with him has been everything you never knew you wanted, but you got. It's just been perfect, which is so sweet. And he said of her, the biggest thing that has brought us together has been the concept of family. That was so important to me because when I saw her with my children and how she interacts with them and how she interacts with my parents, I just have something. It's just something I love seeing. And what's funny is that not only did they have Tina and Tony's wedding um, in common, but both they're both Italian and they both have um, their both have families that live in Abruzzo, which is an Italian region east of Rome. Three years ago, they traveled there together. What they didn't know, this is something that he said um, to Rick said about Denise, like about how amazing she is, is that when they got there, you know, they had been on a plane for forever. They were tired and hungry. And when they got there, they realized that he had a a death in his family. And so they were supposed to go there for like a romantic trip. And then the next thing they know, they're all like, you know, dressed in black and 
and headed to a funeral. And he said that Denise just took everything in stride. And she, he said, I look back at that moment in time as a seminal moment in our relationship. Like, you know, like no matter what, she just supported him and rolled with it. And, yeah, you know, it really spoke volumes to him. And they continued to support each other. He stage managed her online show that she uh, has called Late Night Catechism. And she road managed his touring solo show, which is called Channeling the King. So they're just supporting each other. And he said, all I can say is if you can marry your best friend, I highly recommend it, which is real cute. That's real cute. Man, cute. That's just I love like that a they're nice, like a couple actors, like a couple actors who are not famous actors, like in in the conventional way, like they're not movie right. stars, but they're like making a living and they're doing it together and they're supporting each other and like living their dream together. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it's like it is all beautiful. anybody could ever want. And that's like I love all of these kind of like kismet stories of you know what I mean that they met once and then then it just so happens that out of, out of all of the Tony and Tina's they were the two that were asked to come play the parents you know what I mean so that they could meet at the right time you know when yeah. he, he he his he was you know single and um and she was still single and you know it's just the timing just lined up perfectly it's great Oh, I love that's it. a really sweet story, Jen. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. No tears. <laughs> no crying. <laughs> I mean, it's sweet, but not too sweet, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's sweet in a way very that palatable. I just feel happy. Yeah, very palatable. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, cool. Well, let's do something dumb and something we love. Let's do it. Oh, it's my turn to go first. Um, <laughs> so I think there's something dumb. I was we were talking about this a little bit before, but I've ha- been having just like so much anxiety lately. Just I think all of the COVID related news with schools and you know people not getting vaccinated and all, just everything is feels very overwhelming and uncertain. So anyway, so that is that's dumb. I just I, I can't believe now how, how long are we into this and I'm still feeling that way or even feeling that way more now. But the thing that I love is that last weekend, Ben and I went to a concert. Do people still call them concerts? Oh my God, I saw your picture. You went to, yeah. Yeah, we went and we saw Slater, Kenny and Wilco and it was outside it was you had to be proof of vaccination to go. Uh, we, you know, could be apart from people. It was and it was great. And it felt very I was like, this feels safe and it feels normal. And it was just so awesome to see live music. Um, Max actually spent the night at his friend's house, which is like was amazing because we've tried it before and he's had to come home. So like that was great. And it was just nice to see. Like I was telling Ben, I'm like, you know, the best part, like I'm not even like like I like Slater Kenny, but I, I'm not. It's not something I put on to listen to regularly. Uh-huh. But it was just so amazing to see women like my age just fucking rocking out and being amazing. Like they were so great and they were so badass. And I just, it was great. I loved it so much. That's awesome. Yeah. I know. I saw your pictures and I was so jealous. I love Slater Kenny. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. 
That's awesome. So for my something dumb this week, I'm going to take it to a serious note. So I'm sure many of you know that this week um, there is a refugee crisis in Afghanistan as the Taliban is taking over the country. 550 um and this information, by the way, is from a CNN article by Amy Chalag. And I just want to state that because the information that I want to share with you, you can get it on this website if you would like to donate. But um, so um, since okay. the beginning of this year, 550,000 Afghans were forced to flee their homes uh, due to internal fighting. And um, now there's like tens of thousands more that are trying to leave the country um, as Many Afghans, especially women and children, fear a resumption of Islamic fun- fundamentalism under the Taliban. Mm-hmm. So right now, um, they are very much in need of um, help and support to get them to safety. And there is on CNN.com, um, the article that I was just telling you about, there is a link of how you can help um, to take action. Um, it's action publicgood.com campaign, which is shared on there. And on there, they have like 14 different vetted organizations. Okay. Um, so, you know, your your money will be going to the right places. And um, right. some of those organizations are the Global Giving, Global Giving Foundation, International Medical Corps, um, Mercy Corps, um, and Miles for Migrants, and No One Left Behind and Save the Children, Women, uh, Women for Afghan Women, um, Women for Women International. There's just so many great organizations on here that I, you know, would like to ask you to donate to if you are inclined. Um, so the, some, that's obviously something dumb. And then what I love are the people that are ready to help. Yeah. And yeah, um, me too. Thank you for finding all yeah. those. I'm may just made a note to myself to go donate. And I I okay. read that you can donate your airplane miles. You can? See, yeah, I think great. that was like the miles for whatever. I think you said one that was like miles for Oh. Yeah, I think you can donate miles for migrants. Oh yeah. yeah. You're right. It does yeah. say here uh use uh uses donated frequent flyer miles credit card points and cash to help people impacted by war, persecution or disaster reunite with loved ones and start new beginnings in um, safe homes. So thank you, Sally. That's great. Um, (laughs) Friends helping friends. Yeah. Um, Friends helping friends to help other people. Other people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I guess that is our show for this week. We did it. We did it. I'm very proud of um, the both of us. I'm proud of you guys for listening. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) We're proud of you guys. Uh, You know, we're just – we're great. Everybody's great. Everything's great. Um, you guys, please contact us. We'd love to hear from you. We think you guys are amazing. We want to talk to you on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, those are probably TikTok. Those are probably the three that we would really like to talk to you on. Um, and they're all at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. You can email us your love stories or your crazy stories or just your stories or just a chit chat. Um, you can... Uh, give us a rate and review. You can tell a friend. Those would all be wonderful things, and we would love if you did them. We would love that, and uh, we dumb love you so hard. Um, so please make sure to get out there safely this week and do something dumb for love. Dumb, 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 dumb.